Welcome to Inspired by Her, the podcast that will give you the inspiration, motivation, and tips for success from some of the top executives, CEOs, and influencers from around the globe. With your host, serial entrepreneur, and named one of the most influential Filipina in the world, Kate Hancock. Uh, we are super excited for Joe here, Joe Foster, founder of Reebok, incredible individual. I'm going to read his bio while he's uh, just getting situated. Joseph William Foster, or Joe Foster, was born in 1935 in Bolton, England, with the same birthday, 18th of May, as his grandfather, also Joseph William Foster, who had died 18 months earlier. Joe's grandfather was the founder of J.W. Foster's and Sons. Athletic Shoes Limited, and the inventor of the spiked running shoe and the trainer. So it makes sense that Joe did what he did. He was destined. Joe and his late brother, Jeff, were born into the J.W. Foster and family business. But on their return after two years away from home on national service, they asked questions. The year was 1955, and the brothers saw a business still rooted in the 1930s. Their father and uncle were now operating the business and very much like any other sports shoe company spent more time feuding than collaborating. The result was that in 1958, Joe and Jeff left the foster business to set up a new sports shoe company. The brothers founded Mercury Sports Footwear, which after 18 months, they changed its name to the iconic brand Reebok. Joe had been advised to protect their company's name by registering it by 1965, Joe was on his way to the National Sporting Goods of America show in Chicago, which was the start of many global adventures and experiences that after 15 years brought him together with Paul Fireman and later many stars of film and television. As the surviving founder of Reebok, Joe still welcomes the opportunity to travel and recount those early stories from startup to taking the company to a 4 billion dollar business overtaking adidas and nike to become the world's number one sports brand he is also the author of shoemaker which you can purchase today i would highly suggest go check out the book wmb.club you can actually get a signed copy of shoemaker welcome joe foster oh hello what that was a a very wow. nice. Uh, Joe, we can't <laughs> hear you. You can't hear me. Unmute. Uh, Joe, I think you might be muted on the phone. It's all right. I'm, I'm muted. Yeah. Yes, and, but no, before guys, let's, let's open a mic to Joe. Hello. I'm open now. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> that, was, that was a great introduction, Dan. <laughs> Hello. Technology. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it has its problems, but we're here. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, Joe, we're honored having you here. And Joe, I'd like to know, what was the city or town you grew up in like? Well, if, if we go back to 1935 when I was born, we're, we're pre-war, um, <clears throat> we still have glass lamps uh, in the gas, gas lighting in, in the streets. And uh, it was, well, yeah, we, we grew up then, you, you, in fact, we had no television. We had radio, just about, but really local communities. A community usually around the church where all your friends and uh, people that you knew, the same age group, we, 
that that was our town and not very big it's grown immensely since 1935 of course but uh, yeah it was home <laughs> and I, I think mainly that's that's what it is you know you, you're just a youngster and you know no different so it was home I love it and what moment from your childhood are you most proud of what am I most proud of? Is, I don't know if I'm proud of many things, really, but um, <clears throat> maybe maybe I, I, I was a runner at that time. Not that I like running, but uh, uh, being being part of a, a running shoe uh, family, I, uh, I, have, I of course, uh, wore running shoes, spikes. And my proudest moment was uh, probably during the war when I, uh, when I won my 60-yard race and I received a dictionary. Not a football. I received a dictionary, uh, and it was an American dictionary. You know, and I didn't think very much of it at that time. In fact, I was fairly disappointed as, as an eight-year-old youngster to be given a dictionary, and I didn't know that it was an American dictionary. And that would have given me a lot of problems with some of the spellings, because they are a little bit different than the Oxford English version. Wow, so who gave you that di dictionary? Well, I, I won the race, and winning a race, I went up for the presentation, and as I say, the presentation was a dictionary, and not a football. And, you know, I, when you're eight years old, what do you do with the dictionary? You know, you can't go on the field and kick it about and play with it, but it was a dictionary, which was to, um, how can I say, be immensely important later in life. Well, can you tell me more? Well, why is that? Why is that? Well, we have, we have to, uh, a little bit of the family history. We go back to 1895, which we've heard of my grandfather, and he was a great influencer. He had uh, Olympic gold medalists and lots of world record people in, in his shoes. That was great. He died, though, in 1935. Sorry, 1933. He died, and I wasn't born until 1935 on his birthday, the 18th of May. So my grandmother said, oh, he's brought his name with him. So I am called Joseph William. He was called Joseph William. So, okay, I, I come into the world four years after that. We're in World War II. Everything's blackout. Uh, and for five years, uh, six, no, it's more like six years, for six years, you know, we're, we're running around streets with no lighting. But again, we're just children. And as that, you accept it. It's normal. 1945, the lights come on, and uh, we're back to school again because we didn't get much school during the war. It was a bit um, sort of in the, in the teacher's front room of the house. We, we managed a few, uh, a few days a week. But uh, at the age, and then I went to college, and, but at the age of 17, I joined the family business. Joining the family business was fine, but one year later, um, as Dinah said, we went off to do national service, both Jeff and myself. Coming back, we come back from national service and we, we come back to a failing company. And uh, try as we could, try as we may, we couldn't get uh, my father and uncle to work together. So our conclusion was to leave the company. And we left the company, and again, we set up the company as Mercury Sports Footwear. And it was 18 months later when we were told to do the registering, register our name. And this is where the dictionary came in. Because uh, 
an agent said, well, if you can't buy, because it was for sale for £1,000, if you can't buy the name, you're going to have to bring me 10 names and then we can check, check them. And I was in his office and he, his window was open. It was a nice day in May. And he pointed to a sign, Kodak. And I'm saying, well, what's with Kodak? It's an invented name. That's the best way to be able to register a name, invent one. So I went back. We sit around the table and we're thinking, 10 names, how do you do this? So I had Cougar, that sounded good. Falcon, another one, and many others. But by my side was my dictionary. My dictionary had one when I was eight years old. I knew by then it was an American dictionary. But, uh, I like the letter R. So I thought, well, why not? I opened up the dictionary, started to thumb through the pages, and soon came upon Reebok, hard to believe, B-O-K, a small South African gazelle. Wow, gazelle, that's got to go top of the list. Now, if I had been looking at an English dictionary, an Oxford English dictionary, that would have been spelled R-H-E-B-O-K. And I don't think that would have been as interesting. In fact, I may well have passed that by. But fortunately, my American dictionary gave me R-E-B-O-K. Wow. Now, Joe, are you happy with that name? Oh, at that time, that was, that was like all of a sudden something happened. What was it? How did we find that name? I, you know, how did somebody come to give me a dictionary when I was eight? Yeah, it turned out to be a fantastic name. We like Mercury, but, you know, three syllables is probably more difficult to say. Reebok came so, you could say it, you know, to pronounce Reebok, it's so easy. And it's so catchy. So, yes, we love the name. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Joe, you mentioned uh, your your father and your uncle doesn't, in, in the same page in business, how did you handle that dynamic as as a company working with family? Well, working with family seemed very natural and really no problems. Um, but of course, it's when when we went away and we left the family, we came back. We found that that, that was a problem. Um, when grandfather had died, the sons. My uncle and father took over the business. That was Jim and Bill. They took over the business. And grandmother was there, Mariah. And Mariah was a, a person to be uh, considered very much. And she kept them together. She kept the business going. But at that point, while Jeff and I were away doing national service, she died. And that, that was a problem. We then had a war. Both father and uncle, they didn't speak. And uh, in fact, we did. Jeff and myself, on more than one occasion, had to pull them apart fighting. You know, and it, it is a bit like uh, Adidas with um, Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler. They, they didn't get on either. But Rudy Dassler did leave the company and set up Puma. It didn't happen with the Foster family. There was no leaving the company. They just continued to fight uh, until my, uh, my uncle died. But he died about two years after we had left the company and, and set up Reebok. And it, it was a difficult moment telling my father that we were leaving, even though he knew we were very disturbed at the fact that the family company was failing. 
but it was a difficult moment. But uh, and it probably took about three, four years really to heal that wound of us leaving the family. But I guess it was our destiny. We 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 had to do something uh, with a family, with a business going down. And I guess really it was uh, we needed a future, and mm. so we had to leave. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Joe, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to anyone who's involved in a family business? What would you so, do? <laughs> you know, families, families can work, but it, it, I think it starts off when you're very young, being introduced and being part of a, a working family, you know, something that real, really does work. Uh, the one thing that I found, uh, I came out of doing national service when I was 20 years old. At 21, I was married. I had a wife. And the reason for that was that in those days, whoever you were, the boys went away from that social scene and did two, two years away from. You, you had friends, you had people, you were the girls, the boys, all, all the friends were together, going to local dances, doing things locally. But these boys were going away for two years at different times, and they come back. And, and that's... Uh, that social group's no longer there. there but, but you do meet one or two. And so I came back to the girl that I'd known before uh, going into the national service. And 12 months later, we got married. So I'm now a family man. And uh, I didn't know at that time, because it took another couple of years before we had to become entrepreneurs, before we moved away from the family business. And, uh, and that... That to me, the realization was it took some time. I now had a new family. Reebok became a family. And that in itself is a, a difficult situation. You have one family and you, and you have children, and then you've got your other family, your, your business, which to be successful as an entrepreneur, you have to be in love with it. It has to have your passion. It has to have that determination, that uh, the will to succeed and continue, even during the bad times. And that's very important that if you've got a family and then you bring in this other family, you have to try to make, make space. But when the demand comes in a business, you have to look at it and look after it. And that can be a big problem. Well, thank you for sharing that, Joe. Now, is there a time where you and your brother Jeff in dis a disagreement of whether it's direction or the vision of a company? How did you guys deal with it? You know, I don't think we thought about it, but uh, the when I look back, and <clears throat> I've done this uh, for quite some time now, I mean, unfortunately, as you will read in the book, my brother died at a very, very difficult time. A, a brilliant time for the business, but it needed him at that point. Uh, and he was only young. He was only uh, 47. And, uh, you know, we never had an argument. Jeff loved the factory. He loved making shoes. He just, and, and the agreement was, look, Joe, I'll make the shoes. You do everything else. Which meant uh, the sales, the marketing, or even to an extent, a lot of the designing, meeting people. That That was up to me. And Jeff loved the fact. And as I say, we, we never argued. And I do reflect that uh, father and uncle, I mean, they, they just were at war. And, and many people in, in, in family businesses are. 
But, uh, you know, I probably did a lot of things pretty badly. But Jeff, <laughs> Jeff didn't worry about it. He probably thought, well, he'll get it right in the end. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I think that was largely up to, to Jeff, that he, he was just so happy doing the factory, providing I kept bringing orders in and we kept moving. Uh, he was very happy to, uh, to accept that situation. Wow. And Joe, take me back to the very first year of Reebok. Did you guys get funding or how does that look like? Bring me back to the first year. Well, we're talking about 1958. And when I look around today and funding now seems to be so easy. Back in 1958, no. Funding, in fact, I, I was very fortunate to be able to, to get the bank to, to loan me 500 pounds. And a family member. We had we had a family member who also loaned five hundred pounds. Eventually, when we did get together with my father, he he also loaned us. I think that was a thousand pounds as we grew in those very early stages. Um, but back the day one, no, we we set up the whole factory for about two hundred and fifty pounds, which is well, mind you, in those days that was probably somewhere like seven hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's still a small amount of money, but it, it was sufficient. We, we, we managed to make sure. One of the best things that we did, and, and probably this was one of the biggest assets, is that before we actually set up our business, we went to college. In the evenings, we went to football college. And not only did we learn a little, well, a lot more about materials, how you make shoes, what we did do is we, we made a, a lot of friends. We picked... We made acquainted people in the business, and when we so when we did leave the business, if we wanted some material or wanted some advice, we could go to the college, and they were there for us. So that that was a tremendous advantage that we had. I thought it was a tremendous advantage to be able to turn to people, and you know, and we were in the north of England. There is a, a, a region where we, shoemaking region. The, the biggest shoemaking region in, in the United Kingdom is further south than where we are, Northampton, Leicester. But there is uh, a shoemaking industry very near to us. And Bolton wasn't in it, but we moved nearer. When we moved to Barry, we moved nearer to it. And I found so many good friends amongst those manufacturers who would help us. And, you know, that to me was a big asset. But money? No, we didn't have our fingers on being able to obtain money in those days. Wow. Now, Joe, how did you end up from 750 euro and, and using your friends and family's money? When was the time when <clears throat> you realized you got something in there? You have a gold mine. What moment was that? <clears throat> well, that didn't arrive until, uh, until we arrived in, in America. We, what year was that? It was 1979 by the time I arrived there. I had been going. Now, it was um, 1968, my first trip to America, which was the British government, uh, they had decided they wanted uh, companies to export. And I just picked up this advertisement that if you wanted to, we would provide you with um, a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago, which is the National Sporting Goods in Chicago. They were doing that. They would pay our return airfare, and they'd also pay half of our hotel bills. So 
going to America and starting that journey was good. And, and they, they supported they supported us all the way through to 1979. But what made the difference is I was pushing to get, knocking on the door. How, how do I get my shoes in, into the American market? And it wasn't easy. So J.W. Foster's, they had managed to do that at Yale University. Yale University, the head coach, Frank Ryan and Bob Jean-Jack, <clears throat> they, they obviously knew of Foster's, and they were importing 200 pairs a month. So that was good. I thought I could do that as well. But finding, finding that person, finding out how to get into the market, really wasn't that easy, and it came about through runner's world. And if you're a runner, back in those days, you, you picked up on runner's world. That was the Bible. People read it. And Bob Anderson, who was a publisher, he, he was doing so well, he thought he could tell everybody which was the best shoe to wear. Well, you've 350 million Americans, probably 35 million were running then, and 3.5 probably will say, well, I want that shoe. So Phil Knight, Nike, yes, I think his shoe was the first number one. <laughs> But he was importing. He was importing from Japan. And he could never meet the demand. So uh, that was a problem for the, for the business, for the shoe trade, for the, for the shops. And Bob Anderson would change it after one year. He changed. This was a, the new number one. Didn't go down well. But somebody must have persuaded or he, he recognized that he needed star ratings instead of saying this is number one, this is number two. And star ratings, five-star shoe that would be the top, then four stars, three down. And I knew we could make a five-star shoe. You know, we knew our business, and we knew we could make that. And so that became the difference, because we did get a five-star shoe. We did get our gatekeeper, Paul Fireman, who, who had said, Joe, I'd love to import your shoes, but we need a five-star shoe. We got it, and that got us in, because that was the hook. You'll know that, being an American. You know, you need that hook. And so instead of us pushing, pushing, pushing for all those 10 years, yeah, all those 10 years, we got onto the market. And we had a nice running business. And uh, and that started from Boston. And the only amazing thing about that with, with Paul, Paul was, um, he had a small camping wholesale business. It was the outdoor business. And... Uh, <clears throat> I thought that would be nice to just, okay, Reebok and bolt onto that business. But when we did get the five stars and I did go across the sea, Paul, Boston camping no longer existed. So Paul put 100% into it. And, you know, that's an awful lot. And that means an awful lot. No distractions. All the problems, just as we had when we started the company back in 1958, you had to answer them. You had to take them. And that was the big difference. Wow. Joe, how did you run from that small amount of, of funding to now in America? What are some of the complexities that you have to deal with? You're scaling and you're in this different market. <clears throat> We're in a different market, but you know what? I always recognized right from day one that once I got into America, we really needed an American to run that side of the business, the American market. And that was Paul Feynman. <clears throat> and Paul Feynman, he had a five star. In fact, he had three five stars because 
The five star rated in 1979. Aztec was a training shoe, a road shoe, the shoe that most people would buy. <clears throat> but we also had Inca, which was a spike track shoe, and we also had Midas. We called it the Gold Range, and they all got five stars. So Paul had the five stars, a lot of these shoes to start selling, and he was doing very well. But you know, <clears throat> that business was growing nicely, but that wasn't the secret. To, to Reebok success in America. It was Arnold Martinez. And Arnold Martinez, he was a tech rep down in Los Angeles of all places. He was a good athlete. I think he'd, he'd actually uh, trialed for the Olympics. But beyond that, he was a good athlete and a tech rep. And his, his wife, Frankie, she was coming home from aerobic classes and with her friends who were really full of it, excited. And Arnold saying, what's going on, Frankie? What are you doing? And she said, we're going to a rugby class. And he said, what, what are those? Well, we're exercising to music, and it's fantastic. It's absolutely fabulous. Arnold said, I must come and see it. He did. He went down, saw the instructors in sneakers, saw half of the class in sneakers, the other half barefoot. So he thought, why, why don't we make them a special shoe? <clears throat> but it wasn't just a special aerobic shoe. It was for women. Mm. The shoe was made for women with the women's fittings, the size was right. And that was the difference. It wasn't for men. And the women loved it. They loved it. They, you know, we got Jim buying a pair of shoes for her uh, videos. And, uh, they didn't just wear them for the uh, for the aerobics. They wore them on the street. They went to work with them and put their heels on when they don't work. And it just exploded. And it went, at that point, we were about a $9 million business. In 12 months' time, we moved to 30 million. And then we moved up to 90 million. And then 300 million, then 900 million. In four or five years, we were a billion-dollar company. Wow. Now, Joe, did you have any mentor or advisor that was so impactful for you embracing that growth? At that time, no. We did a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. And and I think and a, a lot of people joined us. You know, we created a winning culture. And that winning culture was driving, driving the brand on. And you know, we didn't have to advertise to employ people. People saw win. They want to join a winning culture. And... Uh, Inclusion, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it is inclusion. You're, you're not the boss. You may, you may happen to have the shareholdings or whatever, and you, you, you brought the company into this, into this world, but you've got to share that. And so sharing, sharing all that, you, you're bringing people who, like you, want success, feel success. And, uh, and the company grew from that because, you know, when you grow up to be a billion-dollar company, you know, there are a lot of jobs in there, a lot of people. You need a lot of people. And you need a lot of clever people, people who can do the job better than you can do it. You know, you, you've heard if you're, if you're the brightest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And that's absolutely so as far as I was concerned. I needed bright people. And we're very lucky. We got bright people. And we got people who shared our excitement. So it, you know, that's... And the challenge, the biggest challenge was that we didn't have to sell any product. It was keeping up with the demand. That was the problem. 
because the, the demand was such. How do you pay for it? Well, Stephen Rubin came in. He was a sourcing company in the Far East, and that he gave he gave the company a credit line. And once you've got a credit line, you can just keep going. And I think that was basically just keeping going was was really our main, uh, mantra at that time. And uh, we we needed then to consider production because. You don't go from $300 million up to almost a billion dollars. And this happened within 12, 18 months. You, you don't do that with, very easily. And fortunately for us, at that time, Nike had hit a wall. They, they had to pull out of at least three factories in Korea. And we just took them on. And so we would never have been able to find that sort of production had that not happened. So you know, things happen in life, whether it's by fate or whatever, uh, to help you. And these things helped us get to that first billion dollars. Wow. It sounds like you really tap into your community, to friends, to help you get there. Now, Joe, was that always been your exit plan to like exit a company? Did you have, was that originally your plan? Well, I know these days, <clears throat> and we were at London Business School last week and talking to the people who teach you how to be an entrepreneur and what to do. And they were saying, look, look, Joe, you broke all the rules. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You're not doing this to, to the plan. You're not doing this to the right system. And no, we weren't. We just kept going. And I think that was the big secret to it. So, uh, you know, when we, uh, when it got to a certain point, though, um, I'd got America. I'd got Paul Feynman as the distributor working on America, and we had an arrangement. I said, "Paul, please just look after America. I'll do the rest." So I was then traveling the world and putting on different distributors, and I put on another thirty distributors over the next few years, which increased our volumes tremendously. Um, but when we got to something just short of four billion. I was traveling the world probably um, three times every year. I would do a global round trip. And eventually, I'm, I'm sort of arriving uh, at whatever city it would be, being picked up by a limousine, I'm going to the best hotel, dining at the best restaurants, and talking to the, the company CEOs and whatever it is. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe it's time that I uh, I backed out. This is this is now a corporate business, you know. It's no longer that nice little business that you could touch all corners. It was corporate business. I, we did some wonderful things because I was also hosting uh, our Monte Carlo pro celebrity tennis, and the pro celebrity tennis we had so many people in from Hollywood. From the film, you know, Frank Sinatra even came across, and you know, there's so many. And same from tennis. So it was a, you know, it was a great time. But I'm just, you know, the challenge had gone. It was so many, and so many people were. So I decided that uh, time for me to step back. At the end of 1989, I I stepped back from uh, my role in, in the company, and well. I thought I'd retired, but you know, the phone kept ringing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, and, and, and I think for me, I, I usually 
sort of say this is like um, the Eagles and Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Wow. Do you think everybody can be an entrepreneur? I, anybody can be an entrepreneur, but you, you have to have the right mindset. You have to be ambitious. You, you have to be, uh, I'm going to say, uh, optimistic, totally optimistic. And, and, uh, and you have to have that ability to just keep going, to just keep, because not every day is a good day. <laughs> a lot of days uh, you find problems. But if you do, if you do sort of, if you, if you know, if your glass is half full all the time, you know, it's great, and you, uh, you know, you have the uh, the desire. You've got to have that. That winning desire's got to be there. And yes, if you have, maybe a little bit of stupidity, maybe a little bit of stubbornness. That you know, we can do it. You know, we can, and we can keep going. And also, it's it's the power of positive thinking. If you think positive, you know, it's surprising. Eventually, these things happen. Wow. Thank you for that, Joe. Joe, you mentioned about brand wars. How do you look at competitor, competition? Well, during this period, um, you know, we, we had grown. We, we had overtaken Nike. We would overtaken Adidas. And we would become the number one global sports football company. We weren't looking at the opposition. We were just trying to grow our business and keep up with our own business. In fact, we were our own competitors. Could we could we deal with all the orders? Could we take on the, this this work? So we didn't look around. And uh, even when when I left, we we were number one. I think maybe the company had to change a little bit from 1990 to 2005 before it was sold to Adidas. And maybe maybe we were not ready for that. Maybe the company wasn't ready. Maybe the company had grown on how do we how do we manage the orders? How do we manage to satisfy the demand? And of course, as with everything, it does slow down eventually. And when it slows down, you've got to be in a position to say, where do we go next? And you know, Reebok did really well. But I, I think unfortunately, I was very fortunate in finding Paul Fireman because he did a cracking job, tremendous job in America. But I don't think Paul managed to find his successor. By 2005, Paul wasn't too well. He was feeling a bit sick and he needed to, he needed to hand it on. And uh, I don't know why or how or what happened at that point, but he hadn't found the right person to drive the company. And so, it was sold to Adidas, which didn't do uh, a Reebok any good. And now we, we're in a position where Adidas <clears throat> have agreed to sell to ABA, ABG. And you know, I think there's a tremendous future for Reebok. We know Shaq O'Neal, who's a big part of uh, ABG, and he loves the brand. He's absolutely in love with it. So just like I was, or I say was, I think just like I still am. Yeah. Somebody needs to be in love, have that energy, have that drive, and take it to the next level. So that, yeah, that could well happen. We're, we're, all, uh, we're all waiting to see uh, what the plan is. Wow. Well, 
as you guys were scaling, your issue is handling the demand and production. So what is it? What is it that works for Reebok? Is it the branding? Is it the culture of the company? Is it the influencer marketing? What works? I think a lot of things worked for the company. All those came into line. It was like getting your ducks in a row, all the stars coming into line. <clears throat> they all lined up, mainly by chance, a lot of accident. We didn't plan a lot of these things. You know, we weren't planning. We, we, we were there. So that when the opportunities came, I think we were very capable. Of, we just took the opportunities with both hands and we, we run with it. And, and that was the just keeping going. Like I say, it took me 11 years from my first trip into the USA to finding Paul Feynman and that becoming uh, my entry into the USA. And, you know, I, I can say that in a few seconds, but I had six failures. I had so many, I, these people, we tried hard and we tried to get in, but it, <clears throat> it took the change in the running market for the running market to grow big as we were trying to get in for runners world <clears throat> it took a few things that you, you look and say well maybe the only, the only thing that uh, we could say we planned was we knew how to make a five-star shoe but the fact that a five-star five shoe would be in demand we didn't that was that was circumstance that that was the market but we knew we knew how to make a five-star shoe just as probably our help knew what he was doing when he said let's make this shoe just for women because that that, that sort of took the men out of uh, the equation the women had a company adidas nike they were male sweaty all of a sudden this nice small british company with a little flag on the side this is ours it's owned by women and I guess that was just so hypnotic. It was just something that, wow, you know, we, we weren't known for anything big. We were just this nice company with this nice white shoe. So, yeah, you've got to add all these things together. And yes, we made some good decisions and, and the company grew. So, <clears throat> you know, we didn't plan from day one that this is how we would make our future. And, and I don't think it's possible to. You know, you, you can plan a route, but it's probably like climbing a mountain. You have to go whichever route you can climb. No, it's not just a straight line. You've got to, oh, well, I can go this way. I can go. And, and, and I think we were so willing to move and change. And yes, we were in the same business, Adidas and uh, Nike. And, uh, but we, we didn't. You know, we, we were not looking around. We were creating a business. And uh, aerobics was something that created or it was born there in uh, Los Angeles but I think we took it global which I think was you know a, a big step oh thank you for that Joe I have one last question before I'm going to hand it out to our amazing moderators that's joining us uh, today Joe how do you want to be remembered well you know I didn't want to be remembered yeah, probably maybe only six months ago, nine months ago, you didn't know Joe Foster was the founder of Reebok. I can guarantee you didn't know that. I was just so happy. Reebok, that was it. We didn't want confusion. I didn't want different names like, the, you know, no, Reebok, let's get Reebok. It was always pushing Reebok. But uh, after I retired, a few years after I retired, and uh, yeah, people start to invent 
where did Reebok come from? You know, people write about this, and uh, I'm reading that this is what happened. This is how J.W. Foster's a British company just changed its name. And I'm thinking, no. And there was a photograph. This is Joseph William Foster, um, founder of Reebok. And I have no idea who it is. They had the photo. <clears throat> who was that in the photograph? No idea. So that probably inspired me to uh, to write the book, Shoemaker. <clears throat> Just so people could understand the story, know where it came from. <clears throat> so I didn't, I didn't step out there and want Joe Foster to be somebody that everybody remembered. It just so happens that the book, <clears throat> the book seems to have uh, struck a chord. It's a, a lot of people uh, seem to think that uh, there's a lot of messages in there. And I guess there are a lot of messages, but really there were experiences, things that we did, we, we experienced. I, I, I had some fabulous experiences and a real fun time with the company but not every day is fun and that's when you've just got to keep going because there are some pretty grim moments wow now joe do you have any regrets for not building your personal brand or do you care at all if you if you could take back time would you build and probably more open that you're the founder of rebook or you're okay with it oh I, i'm okay with where we are regrets no i think you know, we became probably something bigger than our dreams. You know, Jeff and I probably dreamed to be a, a top company, you know, known globally. We didn't dream, I'm sure, at that time to become number one. So, you know, we overtake Nike, we overtake Adidas, we are number one. So what's to regret? I mean, the only thing if you cause a regret, it, it is so sad. And my brother died just when we'd got our five-star shoe. And he didn't see that growth. He didn't get to feel the the fun, the, the, the real sort of um, uh, excitement. He didn't get that. So, you know, there are things that I'm sad about. Mm. Regret, I can't do anything about it. And, and you know, I, I think regrets can be a waste of time. So, yes, I could have done things a million times different in different ways. But, you know, as I say, when you become number one, what's to regret? Wow. Thank you so much. Dan, where can our audience buy the book? Uh, Joe, what's the site for yes. LinkedIn and Instagram Live and Facebook? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, okay. so I'll share just so everybody has. And Joe, this is really incredible. Thank you. Um, I know a lot of people have questions, and we'll open it up here in a second. So just want to say thank you before that. We're honored that you're here Joe Foster, founder of Reebok, the company that everybody in the world has at one time has had a pair of shoes of Reebok, if not many shoes. So if you go to wmb.club, it'll actually forward you to their site. It's jwfosterheritage.com or just go to wmb.club. Shoemaker is the book. Not only do you get the book, though. You also get the book signed by Joe with a personal message. And there's some additional stuff that they're also giving, which is incredible. I mean, why would you go on Amazon to buy it? Just buy it from their site. WMB.club will forward you to the JWFosterHeritage.com. Buy the book right now. This is incredible. You get it signed by Joe himself with a personalized message. That is just incredible. No one's really doing that. Um, so don't go to Amazon. You can. 
but go to wmb.club. It'll take you to jwfosterheritage.com. Buy the book Shoemaker by Joe Foster here, founder of Reebok. I know we're going to open up to Q&A. Before we do, is there anywhere else, Joe, that you'd want people to check you out on? I think you said it all, Dan. Thank you very much. <clears throat> that's, that's incredible. That, that is our website. And like you were saying, we push a couple of things. We actually put in there, it's a letterhead from J.W. Foster's from the 1920s. And it does say that we supplied all Olympic athletes at the Antwerp Olympic Games in 1920, plus lots of other stuff. So it's quite an amazing piece of paper. Wow, what an honor. I, I think this is our very first iconic brand here. And Joe, we are so honored having you here. And if you have any friends that created iconic brand, bring them here. We'd love to have them as well. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And visit katehancock.com so you don't miss out on the next episode.